From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. As women age and reach menopause, a lot of them suffer from vaginal atrophy, the thinning, drying, and the inflammation of the vaginal walls that's caused by a loss of the hormone estrogen. Experts now agree that a more accurate term for vaginal atrophy is genitourinary syndrome of menopause, or GSM. Women didn't even really tie what was happening to menopause itself, so they didn't tie it to those hormonal changes. Also, there are a lot of urinary tract symptoms that go along with these hormonal changes at menopause. Also on the program, we'll hear about the Emerald Program, using coordinated care to treat teenage depression. And one patient's heart transplant story. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, according to the North American Menopause Society, up to 45% of postmenopausal women find sex painful. But fewer than a quarter of those women go to their doctor to try and do something about it. In fact, a survey of women aged 57 to 85, only 22% said they had even discussed their sex lives with their doctors since they turned the age of 50. Well, part of the reason women stay quiet might just be the name used to describe the condition, vaginal atrophy. Oh, boy. To combat the stigma, the NAMS, now once again, that's the North American Menopause Society, and the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health have introduced a new medical term called genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Well, they were they're hoping that that would encourage more women to seek treatment. Here to discuss GSM is the director of the Office of Women's Health at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Stephanie Fabian. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Fabian. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Good to see you, Dr. Fabian. And you also have a new title since the last time you were with us. I do indeed. It's the director of executive and international medicine. So uh, do you still work in the women's health clinic or is it all in executive health? Three days a week. So renaming vaginal atrophy, GSM, do you think that that's going to have an impact on patients and maybe patients more willing to talk about it? I hope so. There were several reasons uh, for that change in the name. First of all, women didn't even really tie what was happening uh, in terms of the vaginal dryness and the pain with sex to menopause itself. So they didn't tie it to those hormonal changes. So uh, the concept was to try to tie it into menopause a little bit. Also, there are a lot of urinary tract symptoms that go along with these hormonal changes at menopause. And so it's not just vaginal dryness, it's urinary frequency urgency and even urge leak. Also, women get more urinary tract infections after menopause. So we were trying to tie in the urinary part as well. And then finally, who wants to hear that their genitals are atrophying? That's terrible. Uh, so That's we, a terrible well, Most people phrase. don't know what the word atrophy means. It's shrinking, shrinking, getting smaller. Uh, so we really wanted to get away from that concept as well. And then we thought sort of an acronym, much like Impotence went to ED, um, changing vaginal atrophy to GSM might be easier to think about, remember, talk about with their doctors. It might not be so intimidating. 45% of postmenopausal women finding sex painful and only a quarter of them going to look for help is a huge problem. It is a huge problem, and, and unfortunately, a lot of medical providers don't really ask that question when women come into the office. They don't ask 
How are things going in terms of sexual functioning? Have you noticed any changes? And, and we ask women every single visit if there's a problem there. But even more so, um, even if women do bring it up with their doctors, only about 9% of women are actually treated with prescription therapies. And we have widely available very effective treatments for this that it just aren't being used. And the reason this happens is all related to hormonal changes. That's correct. So as we go through menopause and we lose estrogen, we lose the beneficial effect of estrogen on the vaginal tissues. So the tissues become thinner and drier and less elastic. And therefore, sex can be not only uncomfortable, but right out straight out painful. Now tell us again why. I mean, it it always uh, made so much sense that if you had all of these symptoms, hot flashes, vaginal dryness, uh, other problems related to menopause, that you would just give women estrogen. And why don't we do that anymore? Well, a lot of women do get estrogen, but as you might remember, that big trial that came out, the Women's Health Initiative study back in 2002, scared a lot of people off hormone therapy, and we went from about 40% of women in the United States using hormone therapy down to roughly 4% now. So there's been a huge decline in the use of hormone therapy, and since that trial, we've sorted out who the best candidates for hormone therapy might be, and it's not everyone. Um, But we have figured out that for most symptomatic women, meaning those with hot flashes, night sweats that are really bothersome, who are in their 50s and within 10 years of that menopausal transition, that hormone therapy, um, the benefits still outweigh the risks for those women. So, And and what were the risks? What scared women about this study? the, The biggest scare, I think, for many women was the breast cancer risk. And that is only with the combination of estrogen and a progestogen. So if women have a uterus, they have to take a progestogen with the estrogen in order to protect that uterine lining from growing too much with the estrogen. And that combination of hormone therapy was is associated with a slightly increased risk of breast cancer, about eight extra cases per 10,000 women per year. But what about the other types of hormone therapy that a woman can take advantage of or, or try to help? So when we're talking about hormone therapy, it's mainly estrogen and progestogen or a, a type of progestin. Um, When we talk about vaginal dryness specifically, we're talking about estrogen only. Uh, And women who are on systemic hormone therapy, meaning they're getting their hot flashes and night sweats treated, they may have enough estrogen then in that systemic treatment to cover the vagina. But we even know that about 10 or 20% of women on systemic hormone therapy, it's not enough to cover the vaginal tissues. And then some women don't have hot flashes and night sweats, but they have vaginal dryness. And for those women, they need some topical local therapy uh, with estrogen just to the vagina. It can be helpful. And so that's a cream or is that a suppository? Great what question. Is that? So it comes in several different forms. It comes in uh, two different brands of cream. There's a vaginal tablet that's inserted in the vagina twice a week, and the cream is used twice a week as well. And the last option is a vaginal ring that's inserted in the vagina, stays there three months at a time, and you take it out and put a new one in. So every woman who reaches menopause has a decrease in in hormones, and particularly estrogen. Why don't they all have painful uh, sex? Why don't they all get vaginal atrophy? Do you know that? We, we don't know why some women are symptomatic and others aren't. Hmm. So for some women, we can look and see the changes, and it looks like things should be painful, but they aren't. They are not having pain. 
some women simply aren't sexually active and really aren't noticing any symptoms. Um, but it's true. Not every woman is going to get symptoms. Only about 60% will have symptoms. And as you're talking about symptoms, is does it happen that a woman will have the whole range of symptoms? She will have painful sex. She will have night sweats. She will have hot flashes. Or... Um, do some women, I have this, but not that, or is it you get the whole wave of them or you get none of them? That's a great question. Uh, there I'm just is asking a, for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got you there. Uh, there's a lot of variety in the way women present with menopausal symptoms, and there's also the timing issues. So we know that vaginal dryness doesn't typically come on right away. So women can get hot flashes early, and in fact, even before their last menstrual period, they can be having hot flashes. But the vaginal symptoms typically come on about 12 to 18 months after the last mon- menstrual period. So they're a little bit later in relationship to the hot flashes. And no, you you don't necessarily get all or none. Uh, It can be some, but not everything. And we should probably talk more about, before we ever get to hormone therapy, there's some things that women can try before they even see their local providers um, when they're starting to have some of these vaginal dryness symptoms. Such as? So the over-the-counter lubricants and moisturizers are a good first step for women who are starting to notice some dryness changes. And uh, lubricant moisturizer 101, lubricants are for sexual activity. And moisturizers, think of it as face cream for the vagina. That's used on a regular basis every second or third t- day to help maintain the moisture. Okay. All right, face cream for the vagina. <laughs> yeah, that's a great All way right. to put it. We're talking about uh, menopause with Dr. Stephanie Fabian, and we've certainly covered the subject of vaginal atrophy, not known as vaginal atrophy anymore, but now called, let me see if I got this right, genitourinary syndrome of menopause. All right, we need to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll be talking more about menopause. We'll talk about heart disease in menopausal women and prevention, plus some comments on memory, sleep, and mood. And also, myth or matter of fact, the risk for heart disease rises after menopause. We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. Our topic is menopause, and our guest works in the in the Women's Health Clinic at Mayo, and she is also Director of Executive and International Health at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Stephanie Fabian. Let's talk about myth or matter of fact, Dr. Fabian. The risk for heart disease rises after menopause. Is that a myth or a fact? That is a fact, unfortunately. So before menopause, women are not as high risk for heart disease as men are, but after menopause, we're in the same boat with the men. So our risk um, for developing heart disease really increases after that menopausal transition, and that probably does have quite a bit to do with losing estrogen, which seems to have a protective effect on our vessels, but it's also a function of aging in general. Those hormones are pretty important, aren't they? They are vital. So when uh, to refer back to what the previous part of our conversation conversation where you were saying in the early 2000s when women were on a lot of different those hormones and then we realized maybe not so much that is a big reversal for women's health care, wasn't it? Is that a good way to put it or not? Well, I, th- I think so, because back in, back in those days, we actually were recommending that hormone therapy be used as a preventive for heart disease, mm-hmm. and that is no longer the case. We are not recommending it as a preventive for heart disease. Um, however, Just because of the, of the potential side effect of, of some women getting breast cancer because n- they take it, or, no, or why? No, for, for its effect on the heart specifically. Yeah, well, why not anymore? Well, back in the Women's Health Initiative days, okay, so that study um, was 
a large study with a lot of women in it. The average age was 63. And they basically took women who were between the ages of 50 and 79 years of age, and they put them on hormone therapy. They weren't symptomatic. This was just to see if hormone therapy worked in terms of prevention. Mm-hmm. And what we found is that women in their 50s did not have an increased risk of heart disease. And in fact, it trended downward a little bit. But women in their 60s and 70s who were put on estrogen therapy had an increased risk of heart disease and stroke. Mm -hmm. And so while we know that, again, for women in their 50s, this seems to be a safe option, when you're starting hormone therapy at a later age, when you may already have some existing heart disease in your blood vessels, um, then putting you on hormone therapy at that time may actually aggravate the situation. It's interesting that uh, for the generation ahead of us, everybody just suffered through menopause together and they just dealt with it for help from their girlfriends. You know, you just kind of leaned on each other. And now um, women uh, in their 50s or around menopausal age are encouraged to go and talk with their doctors about things like managing your hot flashes or GSM. And that's a that's a big shift in women's health care, too. Well, I think it's great. It's encouraging to me to see that women are seeking care now. But if you think about it, menopause and living 40 or 50 percent of our lives after menopause is a new phenomenon. Um, We had a life expectancy of 50 years in 1900, so women didn't live past menopause in the last century. This is a new deal for us. This is a brave new world. We're in new territory here. So uh, it's not even so much about just taking good care of your health. It's your quality of life that we're talking about. It's absolutely. We just don't want to live longer. We want to live healthier and live better. So this is really about maintaining your health after menopause in this second half of your life, if you will. When you see women uh, who... uh reach menopause and come in to see you, what's their chief complaint? What's the number one thing you hear from women who are who have just reached menopause? That's a great question. Okay, well, there are a couple. So hot flashes are probably the most common complaint, but the ones that bother women the most, the weight and their mood. So yeah. those are the symptoms that really bug women the most, but the most common symptom is actually the hot flashes. What do you mean their mood? So, so women get a lot of mood changes around menopause. It's really common to have. It gets worse. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, watch it. I know you're watching. Yeah. Um, So, uh, women can get um, moodiness, so up and down on the emotions, but also anxiety is a big problem around menopause. And women who have never ever had a mood issue before may actually have a little bit of a mood issue going through menopause. But women who have had mood issues that relate to hormones, like premenstrual syndrome, mood issues, or baby blues after they've delivered a baby, or even postpartum depression, those women are much more vulnerable to these mood changes around menopause. Um, And women who have real mood issues, like a major depression, uh, tend to have significant problems during this time. that's relatively new information for people to hear, that depression can be one of the symptoms of menopause. Right. And whether it's directly related to hormones or a combination of hormones and genetics and life circumstances, and stressors is is probably a a mix of things. We probably should uh, just put in a quick plug for the last time you were here. It was for the new menopause book that you have that Mayo Clinic has put out. And so Tell people where they can where they can pick that up. It's the Menopause Solution, and it's widely available wherever books are sold. But uh, MayoClinic.org is also a resource. Flying off the shelves. Flying off the shelves. So tell us how you approach women who come in complaining of those two problems that you just mentioned: weight gain and uh, mood issues. 
Well, so with the weight gain, and that's a, a touchy one, um, there are many reasons why we tend to put on a little weight at menopause, and not all of them are hormone-related. But there is definitely a shift downward in metabolism. We tend not to move as much after menopause. We're losing a little bit of muscle mass every year, so we're burning fewer calories from that direction. And then the hormone-driven part is that every little last bit of fat you have redistributes to the midsection. So the most important thing for women to know is, one, you're not you're not imagining this. This is really <laughs> happening. Um, and two, it's important to find your new balance. What was working before isn't working now, and you've got to find the new how, where you balance out and you're not gaining weight, and that's going to be a little less in and a little more exercise. You don't need to get a new mirror. It is the real you. Yeah, unfortunately. I want to throw my scale out the window right now. But, but it's you know working. what? That's funny that he says that it is the real you. I mean, it does. some days feels like the body snatchers has come in and somebody else is standing here in my shoes. I, this is a common complaint. I hear it in my office all the time. But our bodies are changing. It, this is the reality. And there's no magic pill, hormone, or otherwise to make that go back. So it's also being accepting of the aging process in some way. Not to say that you shouldn't oh. fight the weight gain, but... That's a great way to put it. And, you know, we are talking about this. There's the book that's available. The Women's Health Clinic is there. So you do have people that are coming in. But what about the people who are listening right now that have never talked to their doctor about this part of their lives. What do you want them to know? I, I just want women to know that there's help out there and there's a lot of information out there that's available. And a good resource, as you mentioned, is the North American Menopause Society and the book. Um, but there are so many helpful resources out there for women and they, they need to go to a reputable source and then get some help. And some of these things we can really do lots of things about. Others are just learning acceptance and mindfulness and stress management and all the things you know you're supposed to be doing, like sleeping well and eating a healthy diet and exercising. So in the mood, issues? Do you just tell women, take it out on your spouse? Or how, how do you help the, well, with the, that problem? The mood issues are, are <laughs> can be complicated, and hormone therapy actually can be helpful for mood issues, but we right. don't start it usually just for mood. But women who are having a more significant problem than that need to make sure that they see their providers. Does that even out once you are in menopause? It's, oh, I remember question. one of the first things you told me is that it's the trip into menopause that is terrible. Once you're in things stable out a little bit. They do tend to stabilize because you no longer have those hormonal fluctuations that are going crazy right around that menopausal transition. So it does tend to work itself out after menopause. So things do get better. Well, you know, it's so good that you're addressing all these problems and helping women who are postmenopausal because obviously we all change and everybody gets older and everybody's living longer. If we're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Stephanie Fabian, she works in the Women's Health Clinic, and she also is also Director of Executive and International Health at Mayo Clinic. Thanks, Dr. Fabian. Thanks so much. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll hear how the Emerald Program is being used to treat adolescent depression. And later on in the show, a Mayo Clinic heart transplant patient shares his story. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic we should cover? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or... Or send an email to Mayo Clinic Radio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. With your Mayo Clinic Minute, I'm Vivian Williams. 
the U.S. Department of Agriculture reports that the average American eats 48 pounds of potatoes per year. It's estimated that about half of those spuds are fried. Research shows that potatoes fried at high temperatures may cause cancer in lab rats. So does this mean humans are at risk? Do French fries cause cancer? Well, in early 2016, the FDA published information to help the food industry voluntarily lower amounts of a substance called acrylamide in foods. The most common source of acrylamide in the food supply is french fries and potato chips. Mayo Clinic nutrition expert Dr. Donald Hendrude says acrylamide is formed when certain foods are cooked at super high temperatures. The FDA has classified it as a substance that might cause cancer. Not a definite carcinogen such as tobacco smoke or asbestos but it does cause cancer in, in laboratory animals and probably does in humans. Dr. Hensrud says if you deep fry foods at home, try to cook at lower temperatures. And now here's a question for you. If olive oil is high in fat, why is it considered healthy? Well, the main type of fat found in all kinds of olive oil is monounsaturated fatty acids, which are considered healthy dietary fats. If you replace saturated and trans fats with unsaturated fats, such as monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats, you may get certain health benefits, such as lowering your risk of heart disease by improving related risk factors. For instance, good fats have been found to lower total cholesterol and LDL or bad cholesterol levels. Unsaturated fats may also be good for insulin levels and blood sugar control. But even healthy fats like olive oil are high in calories, so use them in moderation. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. In 2011, the Mayo Clinic started a pilot program for adolescent depression called the Emerald Program. Now, that is short for Early Management and Evidence-Based Recognition of Adolescents Living with Depression. There's a reason why they call it the Emerald Program. Emerald makes more sense. Yep, and it's based on a model of care that's used for adults with depression. The Emerald Program aims to treat medical and psychiatric issues in primary care by looking at the whole person and catching problems early on. That makes sense. Here to explain the Emerald Program is Care Coordinator with Employee and Community Health, Nurse Roxy Brennan. Welcome to the program, Roxy. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I'm glad to be here today. Nurse Brennan, it's very good to meet you because I've heard so much about you uh, from my daughter, Ariana. Uh, she has always said to me, you got to have Roxy on. you got to have Roxy on your show. And so <laughs> here's Roxy. Well, why uh, does there need to be a special program for teens? Well, absolutely. There is a complete difference between adult depression and adolescent depression. What we learned from Diamond, the adult depression program, was the more people involved in the intervention, it was helpful for their adult lives. Now, with adolescents, you have their own life and their old world. We also have family that we'd like to teach and ask any of their questions that they may or may not have about the disease of depression. The other part of this is also being supportive to the primary care providers for their own confidence in treating adolescent depression. Now, when you talk about coordinated care um, as part of the Emerald Program, that's basically what you've just outlined for us. There are multiple people involved in the care of one individual. Yes, absolutely, Dr. Shives. Um, Collaborative care, care coordination is not new, per se, in primary health. It worked with congestive heart failure, diabetes, 
asthma. Looking at mental health, we also could address depression. Myself, as a RN care coordinator, would work with the primary care provider, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. John Huxel is my supervising psychiatrist, pediatric social workers that also happen to be right on the primary care floor, and any other health care professionals, be it here at Mayo or in the community. The care coordinator will be the liaison through all those specialties, first and foremost, meeting the patient's needs, the family needs, and then being supportive for primary care and any of the other specialties. Keeping the patient in the right place in primary care, not sending them out to a specialty area. You don't have specific training for what you do, right? I mean, you you were tell us how you got into the Emerald oh, now program. Oh, you're going to age me. <laughs> um, I have worked at Mayo. It will be 17 years in October. I am a psychiatric nurse. Oh, okay. I specialize in child and mental health and addictions, and I was brought on board for the Diamond program. And at that time, um, as Dr. Mark Williams suggested that they were thinking about discussing, possibly trying a quality improvement project for adolescent depression. Hmm. And I volunteered and was more or less tenacious saying, let's try this, let's try this, along with them. Dr. Marcy Billings was the pediatrician champion for Diamond and then again for Emerald. We started discussion, and it went from quality improvement project to pilot to now program. And we just, as you said, um, was five years in July. So I just want to make sure I have this straight. The way that the Emerald program is different from mental health care for teenagers in any other place across the country is that you help coordinate the care to maybe deal with other issues that are going on with the teen? Mm -hmm. First and foremost, it starts with the primary care provider. If the patient has some signs and symptoms of depression and they meet the criteria for depression, which is a depression questionnaire, um, the provider will contact me. I come in and I ask some questions. Um, We screen for depression, anxiety, mood disorder, along with any issues with alcohol or drugs. I gather a family history, uh, social history from the patient and family. I present that to Dr. Huxel in my mm-hmm. case. Uh, I bring his recommendations back to the primary care. All of that could probably yeah. take a good six to eight weeks if that patient had to be referred out to specialty care. Okay, so it makes the process a little bit more likely to happen because Absolutely. you don't have to send the patient out and then hope that the patient and or the parents will make an appointment with a psychiatrist or psychologist. You can just start that process when they're there for a uh, physical. Mm-hmm. Would you say that uh, overall is depression a more common problem among adolescents than it is among the adult population? Um, in the literature, 70% of adolescents will have a depressive episode before they reach adulthood. Wow, 70%. The, 70%. And of that 70%, one-fourth to one-third of that population will be treated or seek treatment be, be treated. Um, the stigma that goes with mental health still today, um, the lack of child and or adolescent psychiatrists overall, not just here at Mayo, in the country, and the comfortability of the primary care provider in treating adolescent depression. Now, uh, what do you consider a success? How, how, do you, how do you measure whether or not 
whatever your goal is, and that is to help someone adolescent through depression. How do you how do you measure that? How do you know if your program is successful? We use a tool called the Patient Health Questionnaire, and it's modified for adolescents. When we discuss um, setting up this program, we we know the liability of adolescent moods, and we wanted a good, strong amount of time. So for 12 weeks of that score, which is considered in remission, and it's under five, that is on paper what we look at for remission and, per se, graduation from the program. However, 50% of a 50% decrease of depression symptoms, to me, is a positive yeah, outcome. Absolutely, especially mm-hmm. for teenagers. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a troubling time. Mm-hmm. Um, the quality of life. Um, I try to contact the adolescents every other week. Sometimes it's weekly. Sometimes it's monthly if I cannot get a hold of the busy adolescent. But to con- keep engaged, if nothing else, just for them to know that there's someone there that is concerned can talk with them, discuss issues, problems, um, relook at goals. Well, it's a terrific program, Roxanne. Thanks so much for all you do for the adolescents um, that, that you treat and, and also for my daughter, Ariana, who just thinks you're the, the greatest. It's the Emerald Program. Roxy Brennan has been our guest. Thanks so much. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear one patient's organ transplant story. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, according to the National Institutes of Health, there are about 3,000 people in the United States who are on the waiting list for a heart transplant on any given day. Now, wait times can vary from days to several months, and they depend on a recipient's blood type. They have to be matched to the heart that's available. And it also depends on how badly a person needs a new heart. Jim Dunbar had his first heart attack in May of 2014. After a second heart attack, he got an artificial heart and began waiting for a transplant. Well, he's here to share his story with us. Mr. Jimmy Dunbar, welcome to the program. Good to have you. You look so good. Thank you. It's good to be here. (laughs) So let's go back to the beginning. 2014, you were generally healthy, right? Yes, I was. And uh, you were at home, as I recall. Yes, I just got home. I just got home from a walk and I started to feel dizzy. And I was I was calling for my wife was next door at Richard Berger's house. One of our colleagues. One of her doctors. And she came over and I fell down and started to have a heart attack. And he came over he actually came over to the house and he gave me CPR and he brought me back to life. What is it that you were feeling? Were you feeling upset stomach or did you feel like that clutching heart Hollywood heart attack kind of thing? No, that's the strange thing because actually probably a month before I was having chest tightness and I was being stubborn. I thought it was just muscle strain or something. I didn't have that. I just had, had dizziness and I had, I think my left arm straightened up and then I just basically fell over. Okay, so they got you to the hospital. Got me to the hospital. Uh, determined that you had indeed, had your heart stopped? Did they need to restart your, your heart or was it still going? Actually, I don't know. I know don't that remember. Uh, yeah. the first time I was in the hospital, I was in the emergency room and I, I keep hearing different versions of the story, <laughs> but um, they brought me back and they uh, got me stable and then they said we could do two things. We could do a stent which is a, is a simple procedure, just not cracking your chest open. And then the second option was to crack your chest open and do a bypass. And okay. I was afraid of having my chest opened up, so I said, no, no, let's go through the stent. 
and they put this stint in, they said there's a 99% chance this stint will be fine. There's a 1% chance it will fail, and I was 1%. And so you went home. Went you, home were, you were in the hospital, what, a week or so? I was so? probably in the hospital three days. Okay. We went yeah, home. Which I thought was forever. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went home, and then I had my second heart attack. How, how long after? Probably seven days later. Really? Yes. The stint failed. The stint bursted, I think. And I had my second heart attack, and that time I should have died. I mean, I should have been dead. I think they did CPR. In the, the story is they did CPR on me for 45 minutes, which they're not supposed to do CPR for 45 minutes. But you're worth saving. But, yeah, yeah they, I, I actually... So was your wife there? All doctors I knew, and they, they thought they should save me. Yes, my wife was there. I was down in the emergency room, and they brought me up to the cath lab. And actually, Dr. Guy Reeder, who's a cardiologist, yeah. he came in and he saw, I think it was... Um, I can't remember his name. He was on top of the bed doing CPR on me. and For 45 minutes? For 45 minutes. And then wow. the guy said, yeah, I, can I help out? And he helped out. And they, at the, I, I finally heard this part of the story. On that second heart attack, they did try to do a bypass this time. They cracked me open. They did a bypass. They did three or four bypasses. And that didn't work either. So I was, I was um, pretty much a goner. So, uh, basically, your heart, they said, you know, your heart's not salvageable. My heart's not salvageable, said so they, they left me, actually left me open. And so I was in, uh, they kept calling it ECMO, and I didn't realize what ECMO was until one of my friends said ECMO is life support. So I was on life support for 14 days, and they, the only option I had was an artificial heart. They put the artificial heart in me on, I think, May 17th. And then they, you know, they did a CAT scan before just to make sure I wasn't brain dead because that was a big deciding well, factor yeah. if I were to get an artificial heart. So they had brain activity, and they put the artificial heart in, and then I actually don't remember waking up until June 17th. So mm-hmm. this ECMO is uh, extracorporeal cir- circulation. So it basically does what your heart does, but there's a big machine there that your your blood flows through, and it pumps it throughout your body. But you can't stay on, on that forever. So then you got a, a, a backpack with yeah, a motor to, in it. Went to right? a, um, the companion. You go to Big Blue, which is a big 450-pound compressor in their machine, and then you go down to, um, we call him Little Gray. He's a companion. And then you go to the Freedom Drive, which is the backpack, which you put on your back, you put on your shoulder. It's a backpack. It has a, a smaller mo- a motor, and then you have to carry an extra motor with you at all times in case that motor fails. Oh my yeah, goodness. so he is carrying around what is functioning as his heart. And I remember you walking down the hall, and the, and the thing would make noise. it go boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Because and and when I was in your room, over. I said, how do you sleep with that thing? And you said, well, you get used to it. It kind of sounds boom, like a boom. horror movie. Well, and you don't want to forget your bag. No, you, you shouldn't You don't want do to that. lose your back. I just have to ask, do you have a family history of a heart disease? or? Yes, my father had, um, I think he had his first uh, heart attack in his 40s, and I was 49, so I thought I missed it, but <laughs> it caught up to me. It did. All right, so you've got the backpack heart that you're dragging with you everywhere and didn't want that to be the rest of your life evidently no it's it, they say it's not a it's not a it's not a quality of life it's it's like dr shive said it's it's very noisy and it goes with it all the time and it beats all the time and people say can't you just turn that off and they say well <laughs> you really can't well not really <laughs> i don't want to actually yeah so actually they they uh people kept asking me aren't you going to miss that noise and i said i was really Looking forward to getting rid of the noise, but actually you do miss the noise a little bit because then you, if you hear that, you know you're alive. it's going. Wow. All right, so now you're on the heart transplant wait list. Yes. You're here in Rochester. Yes. And and as I recall, 
uh, it, it took a long time. What to what ultimately happened? Well, I waited till December 27th or 28th, and I couldn't wait any longer. That was like seven months or six months. It was like eight months eight because months. it was actually the first heart attack was in April. Then I had to transplant in May, so uh, the artificial in May, and then it waited till December in hospital, which I go back to that three days was felt forever, but eight months feels a lifetime. A lot longer. Wow. And so then I couldn't take it anymore. So I could go out of the hospital and wait 1B, but I could wait two years on the list with that artificial. So, so I, uh, explain that again. So if you're in the hospital, then you're 1A. You're means 1A. Means you're at the top of the list. Well, you're on it's, a different list. Oh, okay. There but was if always you leave someone the ahead hospital. of me on the list, but I was, yeah, I was on 1A. Okay. But if you leave the hospital, then you're, you're not as... You don't have as good a chance of getting a heart attack? Well, you go on a, on a other list where other people are out of the hospital waiting, so it depends, you know, where you are. But like you said earlier, it depends. It should it should matter how critical you are. But, and, you know, having an artificial, I thought I was pretty critical. <laughs> as do all the families of all of the people who are on that list, yes, of course. Yes, it's, yes it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough way to go or tough way to list or tough, hard way to wait is that somebody has to get transferred before you. So while you're waiting in the hospital, you'd see people in your hallway get transplanted, and so it would be it would be hard to, you know, Yeah, so that. then what happened? So what did you do? So then the other option was there was always an option to go to Scottsdale and wait at uh, Scottsdale Mail down there. So the Mail Clinic at Scottsdale, is our, we, ch- we chose that option. So the only way to get there is to either fly, and you have to take a whole team of perfusionists and doctors with you, or you can drive yourself, and we chose to drive ourselves. So my wife just plugged me into the car, and we <laughs> took off down the highway. Unbelievable. <laughs> so what's it took you two days, three days? It took us about three days because we yeah. could only drive about eight hours a day because my legs would start to get stiffened up, and I, I couldn't sit in the car for more than eight hours. Well, and the reason to go down there is because there was a better chance of getting a heart in Scottsdale than in Well, what I was told was when you went to Arizona, you got the whole state of Arizona if you were in the male Scottsdale, and there's no other hospitals that do transplants oh, okay. in the yeah. state. It so increased you get your the, odds? Yeah. Is that well, a way the, to look at it? Logistics was the number of people down there. There's just so many more people and bodies running around that you Plus, have a better it's chance. winter, so yeah. go to Arizona. Right. Yes, I uh, wish I would have went in like October. <laughs> Accidents and trauma and everything else. So how long uh, did you wait in at Scottsdale? Well, it took me two weeks to get back into the hospital because I had to go through all the tests again. But I, w- I got in the 19th of Martin Luther uh, Day King Day. And then on uh, basically five days later, I had my first offer. Wow. And, and that was it didn't a good work. offer? Nope, it didn't work because... <laughs> It wasn't up to the quality, and thank goodness it didn't work. It, it wasn't a good heart for me. And so then I had my second offer probably seven days after that, right after the Super Bowl. Super Bowl was in Arizona, so uh, the next day mm-hmm. I had my f- second offer, and that was the same situation. Wasn't a it wasn't a good match once they saw the heart. Do you know anything about the donor of your heart? Yes. The third offer came actually two weeks after that, and uh, it came on the uh, 19th. Uh, February and uh, after you get the transplant, you should write a thank you letter to the family just to just to say thank you for your donation. It saved my life and I really appreciate it. So I did that, and then it took them about two months to write back. And they said, you know, we're glad you're doing well and you're feeling good, and you're welcome. Oh, amazing! Well, you look terrific. So obviously the heart's working well. You're I assume on some medication to prevent rejection, but other than that, doing well. Yes, on any rejection for the rest of my life. But 
that's minimal to what I've been through. And yes, I did meet the donor family. We did meet a year anniversary until the day that that happened. Oh man, it was that amazing. Must, that must it was the most amazing. Pretty thing touching. I've been pretty yes, touching. Very emotional. Hey, thanks so much for being here. You got a great story, and you look so well, and we're all really happy for you. Thank you, and for everything you do, Jimmy Dunbar. That's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer and social media editor for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.